Welcome to Project Chatter, the podcast where PPM experts from various sectors talk about the latest trends. Listen to Val and Dale as they talk about tried and tested best practices and share their unfiltered thoughts about the industry. Whether you're here to learn how to progress your career, improve your project control skills, or just want to hear an Aussie and South African rant about projects, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Project Chatter podcast with your hosts, Dale Fung and Val Matthews. This podcast is brought to you by Innate. We hear it from our podcast guests frequently. Today's capital projects require the highest degree of visibility. That's why we at the Project Chatter podcast want to tell you about construction project management software from Innate. It's software that integrates every aspect of your project and puts you in control. Innate's cloud-based solutions provide a connected data flow that improves efficiency and guides better outcomes across the entire project lifecycle. See what Innate software can do for your next construction project. Learn more at innate.com. That's I-N-E-I-G-H-T dot com. This podcast is brought to you by Plan Academy. Is your company proactive when it comes to scheduling? Many companies believe project schedules are just the requirements of the contract, but companies looking to gain an advantage strategically manage their project timeline, resources, and budget. Plan Academy helps construction companies improve their project controls through immersive online training courses. At Plan Academy, your team can learn construction, planning and scheduling theory, how to master scheduling software like Primavera P6, and even advanced scheduling techniques. Plan Academy's courses are 100% online and can save your company thousands when compared to costly in-person training. Visit planacademy.com forward slash chatter to download course outlines and talk to a training specialist now. Hi everyone, this episode is brought to you by Just Do. Just Do is a portfolio project management tool we've been using at Project Chatter. Whilst all other systems cater for small teams, Just Do caters for teams large and small, plus it has no set hierarchies, meaning your structure, your platform, your workflow. I agree, Val. While Just Do is simple to use, it also has a lot of powerful functionality. My favorite is the task-specific chat. Yes, and for all you slackers out there, don't wait for Monday. Do check out justdo.com. Now on with the pod. In this episode, we are joined by David Snowden, and we cover the topic of project management under conditions of inherent uncertainty, but we cover so much more than that. Dale, what did you think? Oh, I think it was amazing. Listen to this bio. Dave is the director of the Cinefin Center, scientific, chief scientific officer, Cognitive Edge, creator of the Cinefin framework, lead author of the EU field guide to managing in complexity and crisis. His focus is on naturalizing sense making as an emerging transdisciplinary field of study. Now, well, when we spoke to him, everything he said made sense. And I was blown away. I'll, I'll be honest. I was like, mind blown. I don't even know where to start with this. Uh, oh, there's, there's so much. I mean, um, the few dangling fruits that I saw, and, he, and he, he tells it so well. He's a great storyteller, lots of anecdotes and lots of entertaining and engaging pieces. But anticipatory management, I think, was great. He talks about epistemology, talks about um, even mycology and how like mycelium and relates that back to project management somehow. I don't know how he did it, but he did. And it was just a fascinating wonder of, of linguistic poetry, I think, in a way. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. There were far too many big words for this South African to take in. I'm going to have to go back and rewind and have a good listen quite a few times. And 
folks, I, I think that's what you should do as well. So get stuck in and enjoy. Hello, project people. Welcome, a, a warm welcome, actually, let's hope, um, to our new episode of the Project Chatter podcast. It's great to have you back. Uh, remember to hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast player and YouTube if you want to see our friendly faces. Hey, Dale, how are you doing over there? I'm good. You're right. It's just about still a warm welcome. The UK is getting colder, um, but let's hopefully have a few more days of sunshine before it does. How are things with you, Val? We're still in lockdown, but I am here. So you did find me from the last episode. So that was helpful. <laughs> yeah. Did you find your way out of that maze? I did find myself out of the maze of my house. Yes. Um, look, let's get into it. Today, we are joined by Mr. Dave Snowden. How are you, sir? Fine, thanks. It's great to have you on the show today. And um, I love the title of this, Dale and Dave, uh, Project Management Under Conditions of Inherent Uncertainty. Could there ever be a more uncertain time in, in our history? Dave, what do you think? Uh, I think it's not as bad as it's going to be, to be honest. I hate to say that. Wow, yeah. I mean, you're into permanent um, variations of COVID. There's stuff coming out of the Siberian tundra we don't know yet, and we've got global warming. So I think it's... I said the other day, COVID is God's gift to humanity. It's a chance to sort some stuff out before it gets really bad. Yeah, like a or warning flag. Or a... mode, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I kind of, I understand what you're saying there. So uh, my first question is really going to be around, we briefly talked about it before we press record, but you mentioned the U-Field guide on complexity manage. Do you want to take us down that rabbit hole? What does that mean for the, for the average listener? Yeah, so the... European Commission adopted Mike and Evan framework some time ago as a framework to look at how do you manage complexity in government. So we were working with their design team and then COVID hit. So we did a bit of radical repurposing and we produced the field guide to managing in complexity brackets or crisis close brackets. And that came out, it's freeware, anybody can download it. You can get a printed copy if you pay for it, but the, the virtual copy is free. And it basically takes people through a sort of four-stage process of crisis management. Okay. Um, the key thing on it, really, to be honest, is it's a, it's a field guide on how to manage complexity. If you remove stage one, then everything else applies on a day-to-day -day basis in a complex environment anyway. So it's the first government publication which basically endorses or builds on complexity theory for management. Mm -hmm. And um, so how does someone, Dave, end up in that field? How did you fall or glide into that subject matter? Oh, I sort of drifted around for a bit. So my first degree was physics and philosophy, mm -hmm. um, which was an indulgence when I did it. But uh, my father was a vet. And if at the age of 14, you're forced to do sheath washings on a bull in a freezing cold field, being laughed at at puberty by all those farmers, you decide to do theoretical physics and philosophy as an alternative. So, you know, I went to university to study that. Um, and then worked in the World Council of Churches for a bit on the program to combat racism. That was the first time I was in Australia, working on indigenous rights in Darwin, which was really scary. And also in Latin America, and then drifted out of that into HR. Because if you wanted a job and you had international experience and you were young, then it was actually quite, it wasn't a bad position to be in, to be honest. 
And then from that into financial management, decision support systems, strategy, that's the early days of computing. And then IBM bought the company, which at the time I was managing forward strategy and put me into a lovely role, which was, we'll pay you a salary, just go and do interesting things. So I picked up on the early days of knowledge management. We started to work in narrative and picked up complexity theory. And then I got summoned down to Washington to meet various people from various agencies, which was a bit of a shock when I got contacted. And we worked on a DARPA program on counterterrorism before and after 9-11. And that really developed a lot of the ideas and theories. So you, you couldn't plan that sort of background. It just sort of happened. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's an amazing the way that you just you said that so succinctly as well. Um, I want to peel back some of these things for some of the listeners because they're really important. And the first one was maybe what, what's your your version or definition of knowledge management? And maybe we can just give a broad understanding of complexity theory for those yeah. listening. Okay, so I define that the, the purpose of knowledge management is to create the conditions for innovation or to improve decision-making. I think that that's the focus, yeah? Um, mm. It's not about making tacit knowledge explicit because you can't do that very effectively anyway, um, but that's what the movement became. So we tell, there's a famous quote from Polanyi, he said, we always know more than we can tell. I extended that to say, we always know more than we can tell and always, we can always tell more than we can write down. So the process of taking stuff from my head to my mouth to my hands involves loss of content, loss of context. So we really define knowledge as, as a spectrum from highly codified, highly abstracted written knowledge, which is where most people stop. And then the sort of apprentice type models of learning and knowledge that you only get after 10 years experience, which is purely tacit. And then the key thing I introduced was the concept of narrative forms of knowledge, i.e. knowledge which is held in narrative form. And interestingly, that was the first big project we did on that was with Land Lease in Sydney, mm. um, which is a big engineering firm. And I still remember Stuart, who's one of the best CEOs I've met in my life, and Neville and all that group. And I got basically told the reason you're here is because you're a narrative expert and all engineers tell stories, nobody writes anything down. And they were completely right. I mean, all of the knowledge was held in teaching yeah. stories. So I, I see knowledge as having that sort of focus and those sort of aspects to the way you deal with it. That's fantastic. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think a lot of the times when you're listening uh, or when you're in projects, you do, um, there's this kind of hand-me-down uh, learning on the job that happens. They call it on-the-job learning, actually, and that actually implies that you there's a bit of storytelling that's happening. Um, that's really interesting. Dale, before we go into complexity theory, did you have any questions about knowledge management? I'm hugely intrigued by this because, you know, the art of storytelling, I think, is not as vast as it should be in the project space. We deal with reams of data and we, we, we I guess, data rich but knowledge poor because we struggle to wade through all of it and actually make sense of it. And those that are really good at sifting through it and, and, and making sense of it and telling that story, I think personally are far and few between, specifically in the control space where we are, you're finding that, you know, because you're purely just looking at numbers and figures and charts, and you're not actually really engrossing yourself in the actual project that is being delivered, you sometimes 
lose that that sense of what you're actually doing um that's just my view though um dave i, I wonder if you have a opinion on i think that i think because... you're right but i mean my experience i've done a lot of work with engineering projects i mean mm. i've i've managed you know million dollar plus projects in software myself right and i work with civil engineers and god knows who else whereas the formal systems are highly explicit highly codified and to be honest mostly a waste of time because you learn to game the system pretty fast if you want to yeah. survive as a project manager and we can talk yeah. about that later um, the reality is the real deep knowledge goes in stories. So I'll give you a couple of illustrations. Yeah? Um, we did a, a lot of work on aircraft safety. The story everybody tells is not the I clipped on my safety belt so I didn't fall off the gantry and I was okay. It's I didn't clip on my safety belt, I fell off the gantry, I fell on my mate so I was saved, he broke his leg. Everybody tells that story, that's a real one. And there's more learning in that story than the story's success. And then the lovely one, this was the Lend-Lease one. Um, I, we, we were going around capturing stories. This is before we had the software to do it. So we're, we're trying to get negative stories because most learning comes from stories of failure, not from success. Yeah. So one of the big mistakes people do in project reviews, they go, for, they go for success or they go for reality. If you get people to tell stories of failure, even fictional failure, you get closer to the facts. So we were looking for this stuff and it's difficult. Then lease, it was really easy. Um, you, you ask a question and somebody say, oh, you want my crane story, do you? And they trot out this story by which they lost the company a fortune. So I remember going up to the tower in Darling Harbour and seeing Stuart and saying, what the hell is this with this crane story? And he sort of grinned and said, I wonder if you'd find that or not. So I think this was like a test and we passed it. And he said, what used to happen, he said, a long time ago, we had a new engineer and he'd been trained in Alice Springs by correspondence course. So he knew about tides in theory, but he'd never seen them in practice. And his first yeah. job was Darling Harbour, the, the waterfront redevelopment. So he tied a floating crane to the dock and didn't allow for the tide. Yeah, lo and behold, crane goes in, wrecked. And he said, his manager phoned me up and said, we've probably got to fire him, but he might be redeemable. So he said, I took him out for lunch and realized he was actually quite good. He's now one of their really senior execs, by the way. So I told him he was now a real engineer because he'd lost his first crane. And I told him what would happen if he ever did it again. And I thought, you're one cunning bastard because you've institutionalized a ritual transfer based on making a mistake, owning up to it. And Len Lease, you know, before the management change, was hugely successful like that. They largely managed on experience-based review, tacit knowledge story, and they made things happen. That, that's fascinating. So two things that pop into mind then. Are we then saying that there's this whole organizational culture, but that feeds into this failure type culture, learning from it? And then two, are we have we gone too far on the other side to, to just looking at data and numbers rather than actually sitting around the fire and telling the, the war stories? Yeah, we, we take a halfway house on that. We capture anecdotal data rather than stories. Storytelling right. is a profession, yeah? Yeah. I mean, I speak at a lot of conferences. I've got teaching stories, but I was trained in rhetoric from the age of 11. Oh, wow. Yeah, very few people can tell a story, but we can all recount anecdotes. Yes. The key thing we do is we allow people to interpret those anecdotes because power comes from interpretation, not from the anecdote itself, mm. which is also interesting. You often find what seems to be a negative story is interpreted positively by the person who told it. 
Um, but that creates quant data. So for me, narrative is a quant approach. It's not a qual approach. Um, what it is, it's numbers backed up by explanatory stories, and that's where it's really powerful. Yeah. And therefore, I mean, one of the ways you do change, you don't say, how do we become a, you know, an XYZ type company? You say, well, how can we tell more stories like these and fewer stories like those? So if, if you capture stories from your customers, your end user customers, your engineers, and you've got those, we map them on fitness landscapes like contour maps. And you say, well, we'd like to be here, not here. Instead of saying, how do we become customer centric? You say, well, how could we create more customer stories like these and fewer stories like those? And that's a whole new different approach to change because it doesn't threaten anybody. Yeah, we, you're more like this, fewer like that. Makes no judgment. It's descriptive in that sense. So I, I think narrative, we came to narrative from knowledge discovery. So it was kind of like, how do we know what people know? Well, to, for, to ask somebody what they know is to ask a meaningless question in a meaningless context. So we started to look for decisions. And when people made decisions, we said, when you make that decision, uh, what artifacts you use, what skills you need, what heuristics, what experience, what natural talent. That's the Ashen framework. So that forced people to think divergently about how they made a decision. And then we thought, how do we find the decisions? And we realized the decisions were in stories. So we started to gather stories and extract the decisions. So we came into narrative, not from the perspective of storytelling, but from the perspective of discovery of meaning and knowledge. And that was then the key on the counterterrorism work and everything else. I find this hugely fascinating, Val. I could listen to Dave talk about this for hours, to be honest. Yeah, it's, yeah it, it, it is truly fascinating. And I wonder how many organizations out there actually place value in this because... Um, it, but it, I mean, one of the other things we worked on there, this is a key aspect of the EU field guide. So one of the first major, the third Knevin article I wrote was a project man, one of your awards that paper called Complex Acts of Knowing. Mm. And it was to study the balance between informal and formal networks in IBM. And the ratio was 64 to 1. Oh, wow. And that was only people who used the virtual environments. So it was probably more than that. And I still remember going to the head of knowledge management and saying, telling her this. And she said, oh, well, how do we make them formal? And I said, you've missed the point. There's no energy cost to IBM in informal networks. What we need to do is to give them a space so we can access them when we need to, because informal networks are context-free information channels. And so they build independently of context so they can handle uncertainty. And it's been quite interesting. I've done 100 interviews post-COVID of senior execs, yeah? And the thing which mattered to them was their informal networks, not their formal systems. Because the formal systems didn't arise in anticipation of COVID. Whereas the informal networks create trust and context-free communication. So that, if you want a metaphor for this, it's like the fungal roots that connect tree roots to create a healthy environment. The informal networks are entangled, almost unknowable, but without them, the system isn't healthy. So a lot of our focus on knowledge management was on building and stimulating the formation of informal networks. So rather than try and break down silos, you create informal networks across silos. And that's actually key in modern forms of project management. You need densely networked systems. Yeah, otherwise the project becomes a formal act rather than something which is more embedded into the system overall. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. It reminds me when we spoke to Jonathan Norman, he was talking about they did an exercise as well where they asked everyone, you know, if you have, if you have an issue, where you go? And they mapped out this organizational chart based on influence. And it, and you could actually pinpoint where your influences were just by that one question, where do you go when you need help? And Yeah, you need to be careful on that. That's social network analysis. Yeah. I wrote a paper on that and I'm not sure it's ethical because it involves you asking questions to people about people who have met about how they trust. Yeah. Yeah. So if you say, would you go, you know, I wouldn't go to my boss, I'd go to his secretary, then the secretary's going to get into trouble, you'll get into trouble and the boss will get pissed off. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but I think there are issues with that. We, we focused instead on stimulating social networks. Um, the other thing we've also done, which is sort of builds on what you said to some extent is decision mapping. If you map the decisions that people make and you match the information flows between the decisions, you end up with something which looks like a spider's web early in the morning after a herd of cows had walked through the field. It's messy, right? Yeah. What we do, what we do is we do that, we put it on one wall. On the other wall, we put the process map, which is how the company thinks it's organized. And I mean, I've done that loads of time with executives. And you say, well, that's what we got bottom up. That's what you think it is top down. Look at the differences. And they're always huge. Right? And yeah. it's, it's, it's re revealing reality, and we call it descriptive self-awareness. You show reality against the ostensive definition. And then you, 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 it's not that one's right or wrong, but you have to get them a little bit closer. Yeah. 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 It, it's at almost that, that self-awareness, but that organizational self-awareness. I want also, you mentioned briefly, you touched on it, and probably going to steal Val's question here, but what part do you think... AI and technology plays on all of this? Does it help, hinder? What's your views on that? There's then a 25-minute presentation on AI to a US audience, which <laughs> I couldn't see with no feedback. And it was, <laughs> there were ironies on that. And, and first of all, we shouldn't call it AI. It's machine learning. Sure. And what matters in machine learning is the training data sets, not the algorithms. Yeah, and I think there are several problems. One is they over-rely on written text, which is about 10% of what we know. Um, a huge amount of human knowledge is abstract, semiotic. Um, a lot of our knowledge is actually in our bodies, in our social relationships. Consciousness is distributed. It's, it's not co-located with the brain. So part of the problem is the over-dependence on written text, um, the lack of the use of abstraction. Uh, it turns out art comes before language in human evolution. And it turns out it's key to inventiveness because going up a level of abstraction allows you to see connections you wouldn't see if you stayed in the concrete. Um, so it's, it's like, the, you know, you can train a computer to beat a human being at go, but change the rules and the computer takes a long time. The human being can adjust very quickly, right? Yeah. yeah. So I think, and this is also in what's called in feminism, epistemic justice. I mean, Beth, who works for me, has got a wonderful way of describing that. Um, she says, old men are philosophers, old wives tell tales. And that illustrates what epistemic justice is about, right? So mm. one of the things we focus on is, is precisely that, which is AI, AI training data sets are not epistemically just. They're actually fundamentally biased. So one of the big things, and we developed this originally in the DARPA programs, you know, when I was working for Poindexter, and both he and I were concerned about that. And we actually focus on how do you build training data sets? That was one of the origins of the software, which does stories. 
if I get stories with self-interpretation, so I've got human metadata plus content, then I can train algorithms a lot better than if I just feed in content. And, and that gave us what's called anticipatory triggers, which is another knowledge management function, which is the ability to tell human beings there's something they should look at. So yeah, mm -hmm. and I think this is a big mistake. AI, AI is trying to replace decision-making and do prediction. Its value is to draw human beings' attention to anomalies. Yeah. And I think that that's where we need to focus. And that's true in project management as elsewhere. Yeah, no, I can accept that. And I, Val, I don't know if you want to take Dave on on this because you like love to argue for for machine learning and AI and and data. No, I'm still but, for. Uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's complementary actually, and, and I agree with Dave that that it is machine learning. Um, but I like the 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 way you presented that in terms of the fact that it's almost the uh, you know you're trying to train it to have that level of intuition because you know one of the things you mentioned is we know without knowing what we know or we don't we don't we're not, we're not able to transfer that very easily um in written script uh, and i've seen that and i love the idea that you had kind of the expectation of what organizations think we do versus the reality of like decision making which is which is 100 it's a bit more complex than that um, i'm just gonna yeah jump just, in we were also find semiotics which is the study of symbols We've actually found getting people to self-interpret their stories into semiotic structures increases the level of abstraction in the data which you train the machine learning on. Mm. Right? And machine learning that doesn't handle abstraction unless human beings put it in. And again, that's important because then we can improve. We can actually then work with smaller data sets to make decisions. Yeah, because yeah, on we, projects, it's, I think... It's the big, thick... I, mean, I wrote a blog post on this, Big, Thick and Rich. It was during the period I had to read Trump's tweets every morning, so they just sort of came to mind, all right? Um, uh, but you, you have big data, you have thick data, which is ethnography. What we focus on is rich data, which is self-ethnography. So it works at the same sort of scale, but it's got human interpretation in it. We love talking to you, Dave. This is this is one of our favorite pods so far, I'm sure, because we don't get into the detail of knowledge management too often. And I know we want to talk about theory of complexity as well, but I just want to pull back on something you said before around how you mapped this out. You mentioned contour maps. Mm. How, how does that work? Can you describe that briefly? Okay, so take an illustration. So let's, and we're doing this at the moment in the States on peace and reconciliation. So you send out kids from schools as ethnographers into their communities. That's easy to incentivize. <coughs> you know, schools have got an obligation to do social studies statistics, so everybody benefits. They gather stories from the adult population, which are self-interpreted by the adults. So, for example, we'll place data into triangles, and the labels on the triangles are all positive, so they don't know what the right or wrong answer is. That creates a cognitive load. Yeah? Um, when we do health stuff, we have scales of empathy against pain and people say, this is how I feel, this is how I think the nurse feels. And that data is handled longitudinally. So we've got highly complex metadata, which we can capture at scale, at volume, at very low cost. Yeah. So if I've got, say, six triangles, you know, several geometric shapes, I've got enough metadata to draw what's called a fitness landscape. This comes from Kaufman's work in evolutionary biology, he drew on others before him, which actually shows the dispositional state like a contour map. Although we're now using C charts because it's a better metaphor. 
yeah, because you know it's 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 more ambiguous, all right. But basically, yeah. so if I've got a dense set of contours, then it's a very deep, yeah, you know, it's a deep retractor well. It's a strong opinion. People won't escape from that. If the contour lines are broad, it's weaker. And critically, this allows me to see outliers and stepping stones. So if you wanted, remember I said more stories like this, fewer stories like that. You can't move to where you want to be. You find what's called an adjacent possible. So a cluster adjacent to where you are heading in the right direction. And then you say more like this, fewer like that. So literally the executive clicks on the contour map and sees the originating stories. So you've got explanatory stories coupled with numbers, yeah. And in lessons learned environment, that's especially true because numbers, don't, you know, the, the story gives you the context to understand the numbers, yeah. Mm. So that's what that's how we do it. I mean, and the math is quite complex, particularly if you only allow one variable um, and distribution. But you know, we, we can draw a lot of that from you know computational biology. No, that's great. And uh, you mentioned this was this software was was free or available. Was that we were talking about the contour it was software? Available. You know, we, we we don't have any grants, so we have to make some money. But now, for, yeah. for governments and not for profit, we work on a membership scheme. Mm -hmm. So people like the International Red Cross are members, for example. So they pay an annual membership fee and they get unlimited use of the software. Um, commercially, yeah. we charge license fees for it as per normal. Yeah. Fantastic. Now, look, I'm going to slip into the the world of complexity, uh, and then I think we get we need to get back to the title at some point. But uh, your understanding of complexity management is is going to be far better than Dale and I's. So I'd love to talk about what you mean by complexity management and project management. Uh, there are different. I mean, I, some of this is by making distinctions. So I would mm. say a complex adaptive system. Yeah, there, there are various definitions, a lot of which I'd agree with. I think the fundamental way to describe it is it's an entangled system. So Alicia Gerardo has this wonderful phrase. Um, it's like bramble bushes in a thicket. And you know, I, I walk in is my hobby. I've just come back from three days in the lake, three weeks in the Lake District. If you go into dense woodland full of bramble bushes, it's not fun. And everything, you know, they're all separate plants, but everything is entangled. You can't separate them. When you pull on one and you get this unknown effect somewhere else, right? Or mango swamp is the other metaphor. So in a complex system, everything is connected and entangled with everything else in such a way that you haven't got any linear relationships between cause and effect. So the same thing won't happen again the same way twice, except by accident. Right? So it's sometimes called the science of uncertainty. Yeah? Now within that, there are different fields. So we strongly distinguish complexity thinking from systems, think systems thinking. Yeah, they're not the same thing. Yeah. Um, complexity thinking has a background in natural science and maybe some overlap with cybernetics, but it's a completely different route from systems thinking. Although they both address the same problem. And the point I've been making to people like Gerald Midgley is kind of like, yes, we know you, you handle complexity, but we also use you know, canals to handle gravity before Newton. But now we've got the science of it. Yeah, once we've got the science, everything is different. So that, that's the distinction. In complexity, we tend to distinguish between computational and anthro-complexity. So computational is agent-based simulation AI. Yeah, that's computers to churn large numbers. And that tries to replicate, I mean, we can predict termites behavior, for example, using that type of modeling and bird flocking. 
Anthro complexity says that human beings are at a level of complexity higher because they have intentionality, identity, and intelligence, the three eyes. And because of that, you can't model a human system. The only valid model of a human system is a system itself. So even within complexity, there are distinctions, right? And the human ability to, I mean, we're the only species which shows altruism outside the kinship group. And we sacrifice for ideas, yeah? And we switch identities almost immediately without thinking about it. So you, you've got this huge, you know, we, we, from my point of view, we, we call it anthrocomplexity or naturalizing sense making. It's a different field of study from the study of insect behavior and chemical reactions. It draws on that, but it's not con constrained by it. Yeah, that's um, that's brilliant. I, I want to bring it to in the project environment. Obviously, you've worked on projects as well. Um, how does complexity management work under the under the guise of a project structure, which we know is not perfect anyway? But is it something that can be, I guess, described and passed on to project managers? One of the things I, I think I want to talk about with you, particularly after you've given that explanation, is around education of project managers. And we look at the, the kind of sphere of certifications versus the actual environment, so the expectation versus reality, and the size of some of these projects as well. They're very complex and complicated. And we, we've had podcasts on before, we've distinguished the difference. Um, how, do we, how do we make project managers more effective in a complex environment? Um, I think part of it is the architecture of the project. But at the moment, projects run off what's called a single ontology assumption so the assumption is everything is ordered yeah and you can plan the project and if something goes wrong you either didn't plan you didn't plan properly you didn't get enough data you didn't deal with things so the concept is things can be planned with degrees of uncertainty and that can be handled by things like risk buffers and things like that right now that's all well and good um the problem is if you look let's say large um uh, transport infrastructure projects always go really badly wrong because once you reach a certain level of complexity you're beyond the ability to predict so you've got to change the way you do the design so we're currently putting together a, a program which will be open for companies to join which is going to create a complexity-based extension to PRINCE2 is there ain't anything wrong with PRINCE2 I've still got a certificate in the loft somewhere but I haven't kept it up to date um, for ordered systems, but there's, there's, and there's stuff in Prince too, which gives you a hook for complexity. People don't spot that. Yeah. So what we're looking at is basically saying, well, let's look at, let's break the project down. This uses the Kinevin framework, which I created. If you've got something which is highly ordered and highly structured, yeah, um, then you can use a waterfall approach. It's a, it's a resource against time. You can vary those within constraints. There's no excuse not to get that wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you've got a higher level of ambiguity, what's called complicated in Kinevin, then you start to use things like time boxes, which are much neglected. Right. So and we're just actually issuing this is the stuff I did for DSDM. We're issuing a new form of time box at the moment. So you basically have a minimal viable product, a maximum achievable product, and you have a minimal available resource and a maximum available resource and you have an end date. And the team have autonomy to vary the delivery or vary the resource within those two constraints, but they must deliver on the date. 
because the date-based dependency is key in a large project environment. That's where things go wrong, yeah, because you build, so that's, that's another technique, yeah. Um, in software development, you've got things like Scrum, which are liminal techniques. So they take something and iterate it to get it right. So they give ambiguity. And then we got a whole body of what we're calling pre-Scrum techniques, which we're also developing in civil engineering, which are things like mapping and articulated needs. Because unarticulated needs are not often brought into project definition, but they're where projects often go wrong. Because as you start to deliver, you discover those needs and we can map those through narrative, right? Um, we're working on fast iterative parallel processing. So if you've got multiple hypotheses, you don't try and restore them. You run parallel experiments on those hypotheses, see what works, and you move things into the other environment. So we've actually got a map of this now, which shows things dynamically moving between those states. And the more your initial definition is in the complex domain, the higher risk the project. So you can start to create risk profiles. Yeah? And that, that's called a multi-ontology approach. So you're saying if it's complex, we have to map the unarticulated needs. We have to identify all coherent hypotheses. We have to run parallel experiments, not sequential experiments, that's key. And then that will change the space and make things more certain, at which point we can use other techniques to move it forward. The other thing we're also going to do there is to move away from project reporting into something we're launching next month, which is a pocket Gemba system, which also applies to project management, in which you get continuous observational capture in diary form rather than reports. Uh, first did that mm -hmm. with the US Army in Afghanistan. So we said to company commanders, if you keep your diary up to date, you don't have to write a patrol report, which gave us 100% compliance and better data. That also gives us weak signal data in a project. Remember I talked about anticipatory triggers? Yeah. We've got multiple fragmented reports coming in continuously from all agents, including the micro anomalies. We can identify when a project is starting to go off track way before the project manager will see it. And of course, the project manager seeing it and the project manager reporting it is also a big time gap as well. So that ability to intervene early when you've got early signs of change yeah, is actually key for me. And I think that's where complexity will make a big difference. That that it, itself, uh, Dave, is, is, in particular reporting, is has been a, has been a burden of mine since I started in project controls and, and project management around the monthly turntable where you're continuously updating for half the month and then producing a report for the other half with lagging indicators that show you things that have already happened. So there's no signal there that really, there's no ability to change or influence, particularly on complex projects or complicated projects. There's no way to influence the change. So you, there's no anticipatory um, signal or trigger for you I, to I pick up. I did something on a big data warehouse project once. I knew we were going to have problems. We have the client from hell. And I said, you know, so I had a team of about 15. I said, look, guys, there's two reports. There's a formal report you give me every month to which I will write up and send upstairs. And there's the informal report you'll write every week. And I will never punish you for that and never pass it on, because if so, I'll be fired because I'm not allowed to do this. So this is the actual report of what's happening. And that actually worked quite yeah. well. Yeah. So, you, I mean, yeah. it was keeping those sort of parallel tracks. This is a non-accountable early week signal. But I said we can now do that far more extensively and we can save people time. I think one of the other things here is to, 
one of the key things you understand once you hit a complex system is a characteristic of a complex system is you can't decompose, you can't deconstruct and reconstruct it. So you can't solve the problem by breaking it into smaller parts. Yeah, and that means you could, that completely changes design. So one of the things we're now looking at, for example, in software design, and I would say the same is on transport, which I'm also looking at, is you create what's called scaffolding and you define object interaction around the scaffolding. And when, then you deliver and then you see what happens and then you codify stable patterns. All right, and the trouble is people over-design the end solution rather than designing something which can then evolve. Yeah, so in software, applications should be emergent properties of the interaction of people and objects around scaffolding over time. In transport projects, you need to build a basic scaffolding, but then you need to look for patterns of use before you over-invest. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's very interesting as well. I think, I, I don't know how mainstream your thought tracks are in projects, uh, Dave, because some of these are pretty novel ideas that I haven't even heard of. Um, and, you know, not to say that I know everything. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of an, a big juggernaut idiot, but I, I do listen a lot to what's happening out there in the field. And I think for everyone listening who has uh, even an inkling of interest in knowledge and, and this complexity management stuff, they should check out uh, your work. Um, because a lot of the time we are told in projects to chunk down the problem. This is, this is a methodology. You see paradigm yeah. shifts, all right? So, I mean, mm. I'm old enough now. I've been through the cycle too many times. Yeah. You know, I've, I've seen everything from Lean Six Sigma to Six Sigma to business process re-engineering to Blue Ocean to Safety One and Safety Two and PMI. I've seen all the bloody things over the years, all right? <laughs> What's actually quite interesting yep. is the big paradigm shift which came in the 80s and 90s was the shift to systems thinking, uh, which really meant systems dynamics and cybernetics. And that went from academic esoteric to dominance in three, four years. Because the old way, and you see this, it's a sort of phase shift pattern. We're seeing the same phase shift in complexity at the moment because the levels of failure of a systems thinking approach to project management are now becoming legion. Right, and once you get to a certain level of breakdown, the space for novelty then comes into play. And so we're going to make it easy. So we're what we'll do is put into a program together. Any, you know, we'll have memberships for companies to join the program. Yeah, so they won't be insignificant. There'll be sort of five or six figure membership fees, and people you contribute, and then over the course of two years, we co-create the new methods and tools with you. So if you're one of those initial members, you get the right to that, which is going to save you a lot of money if it works and won't cost you too much if it fails. So we see that as a co-collaboration, a co-evolution of methods and tools. Yeah? And mm. I've got the whole example of the nonsense of agile in the software industry, of people cobbling together a method and a certification scheme on based on their half-baked memories of three projects they didn't do very well in the first place, you know, as happened with SAFE, for example. Yeah. Fascinating. Dave, just touching on um, your paradigm shift there. Why is it? Is it is it because systems thinking gave people a, a bit of a safety net that if things failed, it, you know, it's not the system because we've used no, the system. You see this in the history of ideas, all right? So and this is called this is what we call flexures curves, which is another framework I have like Kenevin which is a sort of modification of market life cycle theory and the work I did with Clayton Christensen. 
So what actually happens is an idea becomes dominant. Yeah. Well, during its dominant phase, there's no space for competition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then the dominance leads to complacency, to commodification. Yeah. The, the apex predator ceases to adapt, like IBM did, for example. And, you know, they survive even when they're incompetent because they attract the premium price and then they fail catastrophically and the new idea comes through. So Microsoft, you know, Microsoft replaced um, IBM, Apple replaced Microsoft, both were nothing beforehand, yeah, but they became the new paradigm. Mm. So you see this in history, right? So scientific management, which actually has a lot in common with complexity theory, gets displaced by systems thinking. And what's interesting is when most people condemn scientific management, they're not, they're condemning systems thinking. Yeah, I mean, I, I taught leadership with Drucker and Drucker was around, all right? Scientific management had apprentice models of leadership. It, it knew there were things you couldn't learn except by doing the job in middle management over extended periods. So the excessive focus on measurement and targets, which people deride, is a systems thinking phenomenon. Yeah. It wasn't there in scientific management. Hugely fascinating. I just want to step up a bit, I guess, and try and take in everything you've just said in the past 10, 15, 20 minutes, however long we've been chatting. And organizations listening to what you're saying, it it makes sense. But are they equipped to just all of a sudden adopt and adapt? Or what are the processes that they need to go through, the evolution they need to go through to apply all of this? I mean, as you say, you're working at the moment on bringing out something but is there anything they can do today to the one thing something? you shouldn't do is have a transformation project the one thing i mean i see one of the reasons i know complexity is coming through is consultants are starting to pick it up and offer more sort of unicorn solutions yeah um one of the things if you understand complexity it says start from where people are not from where you would want them to be so in complexity work you start off by mapping where people are and you identify where you can change things and you start to change things and evolve the system. A catastrophic shift may occasionally be necessary, but it's very high risk. So the key thing, if you're a company interested in this, and we've got a set of techniques laid out in the field guide, entangled trios allows you to build your informal network so everybody's within three degrees of separation of everybody else within six months. Well, there's no risk in doing that and it could have a huge benefit. Mapping knowledge at the right level of granularity so you can repurpose it under stress. Well, that's just sensible precaution. Using your employees as a human sensor network to give you real-time feedback, that's just sensible. So, you know, you go and do things which make a difference and then gradually migrate, I think, is key. We need to stop this concept of transformation. It's it's deeply damaged organisations. And it's built this huge consultancy industry, which is based on a manufacturing model, not a knowledge model. Yeah, consultants roll out pre predefined solutions rather than adapting to context. Uh, another Drucker story, by the way. I mean, I, I had a lot of fun with Drucker. Um, yeah, first yeah. time I met him was within the Hotel Dell in um, San Diego, which is where they filmed Some Like It Hot, right? Wonderful hotel. And mm. um, I criticized Taylorism, and he was speaking afterwards, after me, and he took me apart. I ended up as a sort of puddle of humiliation on the stage with this 93-year-old genius. Then he decided I was possibly redeemable and took me out for dinner. And then we started to teach executive leadership classes together, which actually saved me at one point in IBM because Lou Gerster got this personal invite to a elite executive seminar 
led by Peter Drucker and David Snowden of IBM. And he put a post-it note on it where it says, who is this person? Find him for me. And that was an hour before some bastards went in with fake news to try and get me fired. So it, it turned back on them, but it could have gone the other way. It was a close run thing, that one, right? Um, but one of these, I remember asking him at one of these groups, we had about 20 CEOs of all Fortune 500 companies in a room and a delegate, all right? And I said, what do you think the role of consultants are? And he just grinned because he knew I was provoking him. And he said, consultants are butterflies. They pollinate. The minute you allow them to do the work for you, you've lost control. All right. And that's a really valuable lesson. Yeah. Yeah. Val, Val smiling there as you say that. Um, <laughs> it's all of interesting. What is your definition? What should consultants be? I think that's it. I think consultants should bring expert knowledge and outside stimulus and perspective. And certainly when we ever do consultancy, we don't put in big teams and we use internal teams and we train and work with them. Um, I think the utilization model of big consultancies is actually pernicious. I mean, there's a good question to ask if you're recruiting a consultant, what's their partner to consultant ratio? If it's one to five, one to six, they run an apprentice model. If it's one to 20, one to 50 or one to 200, the partner is just a salesman. He's not got any knowledge. He's only in that position because he can sell. Yeah. You will get the standard solution because everybody wants long-term utilization with a big team. And so I, th I think consultancy moves need to move back to that fertilization. Yeah. Yeah. Well said, I, yeah, I think Go that's ahead. right. I think, um, you know, that, that, that does save me. Phew. Thanks Dave. Um, <laughs> Because we come, I come from a very small boutique um, firm, and, and you see that as well. But it doesn't stop people from buying. So, you know, one of the things no, I think is actually damaging to the environment as well is is we are we're 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 buying the candy, even though we you know it's bad for our teeth. If you know what I mean. People need to know the reasons for that, though. It's like um, there was an old adage when I was first in IT: nobody gets fired for buying IBM. So, you know, the VAX platform was much better than anything IBM had. And the, the IBM software was total bloody crap, all right? God yeah, help yeah. us if you had to implement a system 36. But if you bought IBM, nobody would fire you if it went wrong. Where if you bought, you know, you know the De Dell Alpha or something like that, you're in deep shit because it wasn't the market leader. And that's the current thing is nobody gets fired for implementing the McKinsey's report. So you bring in the big consultancies, not because you know they're going to do a good job, because you know they probably won't. You're not stupid to have got an exact level, but it's safe to do that. Now, I think one of the reasons we put the effort we did into the EU field guide is that makes complexity safe. So, for example, we got an assessment process from the field guide. Well, it's European Union, European Commission field guide on complexity management. We're doing the assessment process. Nobody can blame you for doing that. Okay. Whereas if you employ a boutique consultant and it goes wrong, it's entirely your bloody fault. And, and you know, that, that, that's the main motivation of executives. By the time they get to that level, they're heavily into risk avoidance. Mm. And also, I mean, I've been C-level, right? I employed McKinsey's twice. I had no intention whatsoever of doing anything they said, but it shut my venture capitalists up for six months while I could sort out what I really wanted to do. So it was an expensive way of getting them off my back, but you know, I did it. I've certainly seen that in action. And I think it's almost um, uh, a middle play or a proxy to 
yeah, exactly as you say, abate some some conversations or drive some decision making. Uh, you say, look, you know, we've had the big biggest and the best in the world, and they still can't figure it out, and that can be used as a lever to to help fund other areas of the business. I've seen that as well. COVID is producing some differences, though. It's quite interesting because I've been looking. I mean, McKinsey's has gone downhill a huge amount in the last five years. I mean, they, they used to write reports which were interesting, right? Um, but if you look at what they're producing now, they're just regurgitating, regurgitating old tap. Um, the COVID crisis has left the consultants with nowhere to go because they're used to longer-term stable situations where they can. they're not used to crisis management. And I, I think that that is going to break them. Um, and if you remember, and remember, the big consultancies grew entirely on the back of business process free engineering and ERP systems. That's what drove their growth. Yeah. Yeah. And as, as that dies and the business schools grew on the back of that as well. Yeah, you're right. I think and as well, they're used to some level of certainty. So in an uncertain world, you're right. I think that model because it is highly ordered and structured um that high level where you've got one to 20 type of ratio they they definitely are uh they've got a level of expectation and they've got a level of return so it, it creates certainty so they can grow well but so when they, you... they're, they're thumping their utilization results up because they've had to drop their rates and the partners use the same drawings but to give an example i mean i did a knowledge audit for a major international agency and I charged them about 25, 30K. I spent two weeks doing interviews and I wrote a report. One of the big consultants was doing the same thing in parallel. He took six months with a team of 15 people and they produced a slide set, not a report, which mostly said employers to do some more work. Two thirds of those slides were minor modifications of the slides that Larry Prusak and I used to train them in knowledge management 10 years earlier. They just recycled them and they charged 3 million for that. Wow. And even when we pointed it out, the institution wouldn't do anything about it. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think that's the problem, all right? You, you, and you're not going to break that by radical change. You're going to, the strategy is a retrovirus strategy. You have to corrupt the DNA of the host. Definitely. And, uh, you know, while we're on the topic of COVID, I think um, we'd love to get your perspective on how that's affecting projects in general. Um, what's your take on that? Um, it's had remarkably little effect on large projects, actually. I mean, they've mostly carried on. Um, mm. It's shown there's quite a lot of resilience in the system. And I think that's partly encouraging. But as I said, we're, we're not going to get rid of COVID. So the sort of thing which happened in New Zealand this week is going to happen frequently. This happened in Sydney. Yeah, we're going to have to go. We're going to have to accept progressive, occasional, random lockdowns with tracing. Uh, we've already got the Lambda variant coming through. As I say, if you look at um, with global warming, there are bacteria defrosting in the Siberian tundra, which are really scary, which we haven't got any immune reaction to. And of course, antibiot you know, antibiotics are less effective than they were. And I've now decided I'm getting heavily into Gaia theory. Mother Earth has had enough and is seeking to eliminate us as a virus, right? So I think over the next 10 to 20 years, we're going to face continuous disruption. And that's before we get the sort of mass immigration, which is going to happen earlier than most of us thought. I mean, you look at something like Singapore, they're reckoning to be able to lock their 
whole population in air conditioning for two or three hours a day. And in areas of Malaysia, if they don't do that, people will just die. So you're going to get, you know, the immigration thing is going to really hit. And that's why I think sort of stuff where other people are doing on complexity is key, because we're moving into a period of extreme discontinuity and uncertainty. And that means we're going to have to migrate the methods a lot faster um, than we are at the moment. Yeah, mm. yeah definitely. And um, we, we had some guests on that were talking about responsible project management and the environment and sustainability and, and government for that matter. Um, what can we do to help? Is there, you know, as a project management community, we are responsible for our own fates, you know? Yeah, and I think yeah, I mean, there's more to do that on the design stage. There's awareness of waste and stuff like that. I mean, climate change is problematic because people don't see it as a problem. Or what, what, I mean, that last report which came out was actually quite damaging because it so scared people, they just decided to turn off. All right, and yeah, well, you know, we're all doomed anyway, so I might as well make hay while the sunshine. And somebody on the call with me today said that's the Republican strategy in the States. They've denied it and they've denied it, and then they'll admit it and say it's too late to do anything, and they'll still carry on as before. Like, that might be a bit harsh, but I can see the point. And mm. I, you, you've got to make climate change a micro problem for people, and we're, we're doing some work on that. So until people see it as an issue in their immediate proximate communities, then they won't be prepared to accept the bigger sacrifices that they need to make at society level. And politicians won't be able to make the right decisions because politicians are working on a three-year cycle. And if the electorate won't support it, it doesn't matter what they say, that they'll go the other route. So to me, and the same is true on all of these things, we need to make them micro issues, not macro issues. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I almost wonder if we we make our own problems, yet there's enough out there that we don't realize that they actually are, and all of that adds to this complex space as well. Also, I mean, I've been arguing this lately in a couple of forums. If you look at it from a complexity point of view, when you're moving into a crisis as we are with global warming, you need make you need to make decisions fast to increase your options. Mm. The trouble is everybody's looking at final solutions. They're all trying to get everybody to lower carbon. That's going to take a lot, lot of time to negotiate. Nobody, and we are now at the point where we're going to have to do some geoengineering. Now there's safe forms of geoengineering. So refreezing the poles is an engineering problem, not a science problem. And if something is an engineering problem, it's solvable. Refreezing mm -hmm. the pole will give us another 20, 30 years. And we need to start focusing. And you know, that's what Jacinda did in New Zealand. She locked down New Zealand fast. And that gave her more options. So the key thing in a crisis is to make decisions to increase your options. Now, you talk about training good project managers. Good project managers hold more options open for longer than others. And they also have anticipatory thinking. They do small things now, which may or they may not be consequential, but having the benefit of hindsight are hugely consequential. And you see it. I mean, I've been walking the Lake District, all right? I mean, I've been walking since I was seven or eight. I was on mountain rescue for a bit. There's all sorts of things I do without thinking about it, which make me safer. Yeah. So, you know, I was walking with somebody the other day and they said, how did you know to go there? Well, I said, I've been monitoring that slope ever since we started to walk up the other side of the mountain. So I've got a mental picture of the tracks from looking at it from the other side of the valley. 
And now, oh, do you do that for it? Well, yes, of course you do, because I don't know where we're going to end up. And yeah, and you're thinking, well, I've done that without thinking about it. Now, in my experience, mm. really good project managers are constantly thinking like that. Yeah. Um, they're thinking for it's, it's called anticipatory thinking. Yeah. And I think that's something which is an it's a nurture and nature thing. So I think some of it is, you know, it's the famous phrase is nature deals the cards, but nurture plays them. So I think some people will never have that ability with regret. Uh, and the people who do have the ability, they have to have the experience to build that capability. Yeah. Are there techniques and tips that those that do have that natural gift can use to enhance it? Well, part of it is multiple failures. Fell fast, fell off, and fell forward, yeah. Yeah, and as I said, when I, when I was first taught climbing, and I climbed up the Idle Slabs, all right, 11, all right, on the rope, feeling really good about myself, got to the top, and the bastard pushed me off. <laughs> um, so that I knew the rope worked, all right? And, and, and he basically, I said, why did you do that? He said, you didn't fall off enough going up, so I had to make you do it. And he was kind of like, <laughs> right, all right, in, in that sense. I mean, you wouldn't get away with it now. It would be called child abuse, all right? Um, but I think... And it's it's the famous if you go back to Star Trek, all right, is is failure teaches you far more than success. Yeah, that's Kirk's famous you know, Starfleet battle. So we actually have gained. We have a thing called anthro simulation, which I developed with the Singapore government in which you go through. It's a it's a human mediated game environment in which whatever you do, you fail. So you have a whole day of failing. And what's interesting is by the end of the day, you're scanning 20 times more data before you make a decision at the start. Because if you succeed, you scan less. If you fail, you scan more. Yeah, that's true. So that's called antidote. And that's one of the things in the field guide as well. There's something it's easy to set up and run that. Um, and it's a way of capturing lessons learned and building repositories for the future. I think the other big thing, again, which we work on is attitude mapping. So, for example, in safety, attitudes are more important than compliance because attitudes are a lead indicator. Compliance is a lag indicator. Yeah. Yeah. And the same thing is true on attention to detail in projects. I mean, I was notorious when I ran a software business because I fired people if they said that they would refactor code. Because I said, you won't do it. I know you won't do it. And I'll end up with bloody spaghetti all over the place. All right. If you're writing something which is going to be used more than once, you write it once, you test it once, it's an object, it's got input, output, it's under version control. And the day you don't know that, you get fired. And I fired three people because oh. they didn't mm. believe me. Because from a software project point of view, that's where everything goes wrong. It's somebody was going to go away and refactor this, but other priorities came in and they were bored anyway and nobody likes refactoring. Yeah, get it right up front, it's much better. I mean, I'll give you another walking example. So I was walking in the Howgills the other day and they're fairly low level, but it was chucking it down with rain. And I suddenly realized that I, I wasn't, you know, I I'd sort of not got the waterproof trousers on properly and my feet were starting to get wet. And I was starting to say, oh, to hell with it, I'll walk. And I suddenly realized I've been trained not to do that. The minute you don't pay attention to something like that is the day you're going to get exposure and die because you've got mm. casual. And that was drummed into me over years of training. And I think that that apprentice model of learning is key on project management. And it's why all the certification schemes are, are fine and dandy, but without experience, they mean nothing. 
Yeah, I couldn't concur more. It, it's hell of it. Fascinating. Val, I know you want to jump in with a couple more. Well, I just wanted to f- come back to the uh, the title of this this uh, podcast, Dave, Project Management Under Conditions of Inherent Uncertainty. Do you mind explaining for the listeners around inherent uncertainty and what does that mean? For- oh, we're in a world where uncertainty isn't something you can prevent. So once you get to a certain size of project in a certain context, the uncertainty is inherent in the project. So you can't eliminate it. You know, when people talk about, I don't mind them talking about managing complexity because the origin of the word manage is the Italian to ride a horse. It then gets corrupted by the French to mean household management. This is menage against manage, right? So taken that way, you can manage, but you can't reduce complexity. You can't control complexity. You can possibly navigate it. You can live with it. You can evolve with it. So inherent uncertainty means in most large projects now, the uncertainty is built into the project and you can't eliminate it in the project plan. So you've got to build architectures which allow for that. Yeah, excellent summary. I think um, that'll be useful for some of the project managers out there, but where where would they go for resources? I know your site is, is one place and a rich resource uh, list of things they can access uh, and membership sites, uh, but... For the, for the average PM, I think a lot of the certifications, as you said, provides you with the piece of paper, but doesn't necessarily provide you with the tools or the resources to be an effective project manager. Where do you go for inspiration? Um, I read a lot. Mm. Um, so at any one time, I've probably got a scientific textbook, a history book and a science fiction book on the run yeah, with a couple of others. Um, you know, and, and don't go, you don't want to go to the management literature. The management literature in this field is, is with a few exceptions, pathetic. And I mean, I'm, I haven't yet, I've yet to see a good popular book about complexity theory other than scientific books. Yeah. Um, so I would read up on things, read up on epigenetics, read Eva LeBonka stuff, you know, re- read up on um, Gary Klein stuff on how people make decisions in cognitive neuroscience. Yeah, um, read up on constructive theory and physics. We're about to launch some major stuff around that with a big paper, um, and that's interesting because that deals with counterfactuals. Um, and this is not about neo generalism either. I hate that phrase. This is about the true generalist. Yeah, it's somebody who knows. It's not T shaped. It's actually it's actually horizontal. Yeah, but if you're a deep expert in one field, you can never really, that will always, you'll always privilege that. Yeah, a true generalist is, is, is a sort of semi-shallow dive into many fields and they are synthesis and integrator. Yeah. I mean, the other interesting thing here is um, if you look at cognit- the cognitive bias stuff, a lot of project managers tend to end up at the autistic end of the spectrum because of the report mm. requirements, the same with a lot of coders. Um, actually, a lot of managers, marketing people, and innovators tend to be dyslectic. Yeah, so I'm dyslectic, right? Um, I just can't see why people can't see connections. They're obvious. I mean, why should I have to explain some logical steps on this? It's obvious, can't you? Yeah. And, you know, why are you worried about the bloody syntax? You can tell what I'm reading. I mean, I read a page at a time. That's what a lot of dyslexics do. I don't read it sentence by sentence. I literally pick up the page and get the meaning. Yeah. Now, 
none of those are better or worse than anything else. It, cognitive diversity is part of human inheritance. And you need cognitively diverse project teams and you need cognitively diverse project managers. Yeah, and start to think about project management as a team, as a crew capability, not as an individual capability. Yeah. Um, and crews are actually the most effective method that we've, I mean, the military use them all the time. The military wouldn't put one person in charge of something. They have a crew. All right. And in crews, you have roles, role definition, and roles can switch authority based on context. And I think that's the other mm. thing we should be doing on project management is get rid of the role of project manager and replace it with a project management crew. I think that's a great idea. I, I think we're kindred as well. I mean, I, I, I challenge with myself with, with ADHD and it, it, a very, very similar style where I can have three documents over and I, I, I can look at them at the same time and actually is enough engagement for me to actually digest what they're trying to in, infer and then be able to use that. And, uh, you know, I think it's good to have people with these different types of superpowers. As you said, that diversity of thought, which Dale and I, definitely subscribe to and i think it's a great idea but i've never heard anyone describe it as a project management crew which i think is a great idea now what do you think about that just on the concept alone true yeah yeah you, you have a pilot but and the pilot but the pilot can change yeah 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 i, I love the analogy because it, it's sort of similar to sports teams as well mm. you know captains can change there's positions for everyone and everyone has to perform in their position for the team to win it's and you elective. have to be able to interchange between them. Yeah. Yeah. You still got your specialization, but if, you know, in rugby, if a forward can't pass the ball, you're missing an opportunity these days. Yeah. I speak as a former number seven because we're halfway house between the forwards and the backs anyway. Right? <laughs> um, but yeah, and you, you look at it, human beings evolved for clans and extended families. And our decision making is best that we're, we're actually very poor in intuition individually, but we're really good collectively. Yeah, definitely. And I think in, in, in my experience as well, those project managers that actually get that concept, that family concept or team concept quickly are the ones that actually harness the most from their teams. Yeah, if you look at it, good managers tend to take people, and I've, I've always, I mean, I, I hate to say this, but I've, I did this mock thing once in IBM which proved that astrology was more accurate than Myers-Briggs. Well. So by way of fun thereafter, we ran astrological tests on everybody in the team. And with great regret, all my best reportees have always been Virgos and all the worst have always been Taurians. And the scary thing is astrology says that will be true of an Aries anyway. So you've got to be careful about this stuff, right? Um, but in our current team, we now do the Harry Potter house tests. Every time somebody joins, they have to do the sorting hat test. <laughs> it's... We're deliberately choosing something which people know isn't accurate. And, and when we discovered we had a Slytherin, I mean, she was totally shocked. She thought she was different. Now, now she's discovered her inner snake and she's become truly evil within the team and thoroughly enjoying it. Right? Something which gets people to see things differently and see other people as different is actually quite important. You just don't have to take it too seriously. And it's, I mean, the other big thing at the moment, Nora Bates and I are hammering this at the moment, which is maturity models. You know, linear maturity models are a total disaster because they're context-free frameworks. And the assumption is once you've reached a level, you encompass the previous levels. Well, actually, in different contexts, you might, all of the levels might be appropriate or inappropriate in different contexts. 
and you don't have mastery you know, on that sort of linear transformation. So a lot of this stuff is a lot more messy. And it's why you know, I created the children's party story is everybody knows how to manage complexity because it's how we manage our lives. We just forget it when we come into the project room. Yeah, that's you a good point. I think you're right. Your family or your friends, the way you manage your project. And that should kind of like tell you something. You're probably doing it wrong. Yeah. That's a good point on maturity, uh, maturity maps or maturity uh, charts. You know, even now today, I mean, I've seen, I see governments still issuing these maturity uh, levels, they call them, but, but there's no faction for the addition of variables to come in. And sometimes on maturity scale, you can go backwards, but they don't, it's always linear. It's always, you're always going towards optimization. I mean, if you look Sorry? at the maturity models, they all go back to Piaget, Piaget and all of Piaget's experiments have been disproved anyway. He didn't allow mm. for context. It is called the, um, the woozle effect in social science, if you know that. Okay, if you remember, okay, if you haven't read Winnie the Pooh, right? There's, there's a wonderful chapter in Winnie the Pooh where it, the, the snow's in the forest and Pooh goes out and he walks around a spinny. And when he comes around the spinny, he sees his tracks, but he doesn't realise that. So he thinks he's met a strange animal, which he calls a woozle. So he walks around the spinny again to try and find it. And then there's two woozles and then Piglet joins him. So then they walk around and there's a whistle, right? <laughs> and it, it's a very funny thing. In social science, it's called the woozle effect. Somebody does something, nobody checks it, but then they build these constructs on the top of it. Right? And a lot of social science is like that. It's a woozle effect. That's amazing. I love how you brought fun into this and banter as well, Dave. We could chat to you for hours, days, weeks, months, and we wouldn't have enough time uh, for all of your insights. But I want to make a little bit of space for uh, our feature, uh, you know, continuing the fun. It's called Defend the Indefensible. And it is inspired by ridiculous statements we hear every single day. And I'm sure you have heard plenty of them. But we do invite our guests to defend it. Um, and just for 30 seconds to see what you can or can't come up with. And you probably can come up with a lot. So are you ready? Yeah, go on. This is like a balloon debate. Go on. There we go. So <laughs> you have to defend the following statement for 30 seconds. I'm sure you could do it for a lot longer, but here it goes. The best use of a consultancy is as a body shop. I think that's easier to defend because consultants have a lot of ainly retentive, highly trained people able to do very specific tasks. And so they're basically best employed as slave labor or as a body shop. So use them that way for that task and keep the good stuff for your good guys. I'm not defending the indefensible there. That's just logic. Right? There we go. That is logic. Very good. <laughs> Love it. And before we let you go, we do have one more pop quiz called Fiverr. Five quick fire questions uh, all about yourself. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. So what's more important to you, people, process or technology? Uh, I always refuse to answer dichotomy or trichotomy questions. Yeah, because you can't, it, it's a, you're asking a context-free question in a context-specific world. So sorry, we'll answer that one. No problem. That's your answer. <laughs> we'll accept. Question two, what's the best book you've been gifted? I have a gifted. You've um, been gifted. You've been gifted. Probably Cardinal Newman's memoirs. The Catholic chaplain gave that to me at university um, and also gave me Ignatius Loyola's spiritual exercise. I know that sounds a bit esoteric, but both of them I still got you. Nice. Nice. Next one. What is the biggest mistake you've made on a project? Mm -hmm. 
Oh, this is where I come up with something which shows how bright I was, really. Um, The biggest mistake I've made on several projects is to trust people to the point where they've made near catastrophic mistakes. But I would still do that again. I think overall you still benefit. Fair enough. Lessons learned. Next one. If you could spend, sorry, if you could choose to spend a day with anyone, past or present, who would it be and why? Hmm. Aristotle. Nice. And last one. If you remember, (laughs) absolutely. If you had to spend a million pounds in a day, what would you spend it on? Uh, I'd probably create a C-Code fund of lots of $5,000 with an automatic allocation to people doing community work. Because the big problem with community work is the grants are too big. You need lots of small grants to get people started. So, And actually, ironically, we've been working on this with the UN. Oh, is wow. how do you automatically generate small grants from a large sum? So if I had a million, I'd do that. Amazing, amazing, and very, very noble indeed. Dave, it's been an absolute pleasure and privilege to spend the best part of an hour with you. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, before you go, are there any final thoughts you want to leave our listeners with? No, yes. Okay, you got the field guide, have a read of it. Um, and just for God's sake, read, I think is the key thing. People, mm. and don't read the summaries, read the originals. Wise words indeed. And any links we'll post in the show notes so everyone can go and grab what they need. Val, any final thoughts from you? No, thanks, Dave. You've really opened the minds, I'm sure, of many, many project professionals listening to this podcast. We thank you for your time and hope to have you back at some time. Always happy to come. Well, folks, that is all the time we have. Remember to hit subscribe before you go. And a massive thank you once again to our guest, David Snowden. Thank you all for listening. Till next time, we say stay safe, be disruptive, and have fun doing it. From me and Val, it's bye for now. information blogs or to support our charities visit projectchatterpodcast.com and if you would like to sponsor the podcast get in touch via our website you can also leave us a voice message via our anchor page and let us know if there's something or someone specific that you would like on the podcast Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the participating individuals and not necessarily to the individual's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. Additionally, any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual.